Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Listen now for the word of God. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. And a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the, in the time of prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them, and went on his way. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Holy One, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We long for this, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Reverend Barbara Brown Taylor tells this story about the time she went on a spiritual retreat with some friends. And the first exercise they were asked to do was to tell a story of someone who had been Christ for them. One person told of a friend who had stood by his side through a long illness. Another shared about a neighbor who had been a father figure for her when her own father left. Taylor says one after the other, there were stories of comfort, compassion, and rescue. 
Jesus, our friend, was there with us, and all was right with the world. Until this one woman stood up and said, Well, the first thing I thought about when I tried to think of who had been Christ to me was, who in my life has told me the truth so clearly that I wanted to kill him for it? (laughs) That's what we have here in our story from Luke. Jesus speaks a truth so outrageous, so unsettling, that his hometown friends and neighbors want to throw him off a cliff. I mean, it didn't start out that way. At first, there was good news. Jesus comes back to his hometown, Nazareth, and the text says that there were reports about him that had spread throughout the countryside. After years and years of waiting for someone to come and save them from the oppression of Rome, they had begun to hope that this hometown boy might be that one. The rabbis asked Jesus if he would do the special task of reading the Torah portion of the day. And Jesus looks through the scroll and stitches together a couple of passages from Isaiah, and he begins to preach his first sermon. Actually, it's the first thing he says at all in the Gospel of Luke. He gives his first sermon, and get this, it's only 10 seconds. 10 seconds. I know, I know. Some of you saying that's the perfect amount of time for a sermon. But hey, he's Jesus and I'm not. But what Jesus didn't get the memo on is that you're not supposed to preach politics in the pulpit. Because what he says here is deeply political. He's in the midst of an occupied territory. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that part about the year of the Lord's favor might sound obscure to us, but everyone there knew exactly what he meant. He's talking about the year of Jubilee. Jubilee is the Old Testament belief that every 50 years, debts have to be forgiven. That whatever debt you had would be wiped clean and you could get to start all over again. Why? Because they knew that despite being God's people, we will still take advantage of one another and fall into significant patterns of social inequality Some people will inevitably become landless and vulnerable. And in the ancient world, that meant slavery. And so the stipulation was that every 50 years, all slaves would be freed, all debts forgiven, and land would be restored to its original owner. Freedom, forgiveness, restoration. That's what Jubilee Year was all about. It's one of the great dreams of the Old Testament, but everyone knew that it has never really been put into practice. And so you can imagine the excitement after hearing this. Everyone is waiting to hear his interpretation of this ancient messianic promise for them, 
Would he address the occupation, the oppression of Rome? No one breathed, the silence just hanging heavy in the air. And then he speaks. Today, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I've come here to let you know that this year is the year of Jubilee, and I'm here to enact it. And boom, that was it. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Total mic drop moment. The text says that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. All the eyes were fixed on him. All the eyes. If you are a preacher or a politician, this is what you want. And there's techniques for handling these kinds of situations. Time-tested rules for guiding a speaker when you have all eyes on you. You want to show the people that you care about them. Tell an anecdote so that people know that you are just like them. You know what I mean? If you happen to have a tough upbringing or a personal tragedy, that's a sure thing. Tell them about that. And then once you tell them about the problems that you and they share, tell them who's to blame for it. Of course, it's understood that they're not the ones to blame. No, 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 no. It's always the other ones. They're to blame. And do you think for one minute those other ones care about you? No, no, they don't. But I'm here now, and I'm telling you that I'm gonna fight for you, and together, we are going to stop them. How many commercials have we seen with that? Those are the techniques you'd wanna use. But Jesus doesn't. He had them right where he wanted them, but then things go wrong. They go in the wrong direction. It's during the question and answer time, which is always tricky. Isn't that Joseph's boy, they say? He's one of us. We've heard about all the other stuff he's done for other folks in other towns. If he did it for them, imagine what he's going to do for us, his own people. And so they say to him, okay, you got our attention. Now do for what's what you've done for those other people. But instead of doing any incredible acts, miraculous deeds, Jesus goes off script. And before that service is over, that once happy congregation gets so hot with rage, they drive him out of the city and try to kill him. An emotional grenade has exploded inside of them. And what pulled the pin? So far as we know, he did nothing to them but remind them that God's sense of community was bigger than theirs was. He offended them by telling them two stories from Scripture about how God had passed over them and their kind in order to minister to the outsider, the enemy the other ones. First, the widow from the wrong side of the tracks in Zarephath, and then Naaman, the Syrian, 
the Syrian, are you serious? Who was an officer in the army of Israel's enemies? N.T. Wright comments, it's like someone in Britain or France during the Second World War speaking of God's healing and restoration for Adolf Hitler. It's not what the people wanted to hear. He was not telling them anything new, though. He was telling them the things that were right there in the scriptures that they loved so much. Only that's not how they used scripture. They used it to close ranks on outsiders, not to open them up. We're God's special people because we are not them. And Barbara Brown Taylor proposes that the minute Jesus denied their special status, he went from favorite son to degenerate stranger who offended them so badly they decided to kill him. Reverend Stephen Phelps, former pastor of Riverside Church in New York, used to say that the movement of the whole Bible can be found in Genesis 12, where God makes three promises to Abraham. One, you are going to be my people. Two, you are going to have a safe place to live. And then three, I am going to give you a purpose unlike the purpose of any other nation, that you shall be a blessing to all families, all nations of the earth. People, place, purpose. Those first two promises, they're nothing out of the ordinary. Every living thing yearns to have a people and a safe place to dwell. But what's not ordinary, what's extraordinary, is that God should place upon any people the command to become a blessing to all people of the earth. And the whole Bible, the Old Testament and New, Phelps says, are these two movements. How hard we, the people of God, kick against this purpose so that we can stay safe and selfish inside our borders and our profit margins. And how hard, how hard God sends God's word in every generation to awaken us to the news that God loves other people. We can see these two movements, which the Bible records time and time again. We heard it in Jeremiah. We see it in the prophet Jonah and time and time again. We see them both at work in this story. Jesus proclaims the year of Jubilee. He told the people that they would immediately be forgiven and begin forgiving every debt, deprivation, and bondage. And you know, right on cue, the congregation starts to applaud. Preach on, preacher. That's what the, everybody wants to hear. We are the people, and this is the place. All congregations love to hear that. We are the people, and this is the place. IPC even loves to hear that. And I love to say it. Sometimes. <laughs> All spoke well of him, Luke says. Oh, in chapter 6, Jesus will say, Woe to you and all who speak well of you. He learned quickly. All spoke well of him and are amazed at the gracious words 
that came from his mouth until he begins to attack their sense of community and proclaims a grace that is wider and more generous than they were. Now, it would be tempting here to distance ourselves from the people of Nazareth. It'd be easy to write this off as something that's not about us. After all, we don't hate anyone. I mean, look at us. We're not necessarily what you would call a group of like-minded folks. You could find folks in this congregation who are on opposite ends of just about every theological and political issue, and we've learned how to keep from killing each other. <laughs> One of the ways we do that is that we don't ask too many questions. For better or for worse, we concentrate on what we have in common instead of what separates us. And for some of us, that means keeping secrets about ourselves. We learn what we can tell and what we cannot tell. We learn the boundaries of this community, which are wide in some places and narrow in others. But that's still love, right? Reverend Brian McLaren talks about uh, a time he was doing research for a book and he was researching terrorism. And he came across a story by a journalist who embedded himself with a group of would-be suicide bombers. And the journalist was trying to understand what motivates someone to become a suicide bomber. And what he discovered was that these people did not see themselves as filled with hate for the people they were about to kill. They saw themselves as full of love for their own people who were being oppressed and dishonored and disgraced and wronged. In other words, what they felt inside of them as their motivation was not hate, but love. Not rage for the other, but protection for those they loved and cherished. And as I read that, I wondered, if love can be dangerous, if its span is too narrow, if the love is too restricted. I had a leg injury in high school, which forced me to work with a personal trainer. And I couldn't stand this trainer because of the things he put me through. The trainer would say, David, you got to stretch if you're going to get better. And I would say to him, I do not want to stretch. My leg hurts. He'd say, I know, but you've been injured. Your muscles have tightened up and there's scar tissue around your muscles, but you've got to stretch beyond where you think you can stretch because what we don't stretch constricts. And it strikes me that something similar happens with our hearts. For hearts don't learn how to stretch, to expand our embrace, then our hearts will too easily clench into a fist. We hear passages like the one Jesus read and, and like those gathered in the synagogue that day, we love it, at least initially. 
as long as we have the luxury of holding it at an arm's length. Because there's no doubt there's broken systems in the world that need to change. The poor, the captive, the, the blind, the oppressed. I mean, whew, somebody's got to do something about that. And we're okay with Jesus' political speech until, until that political speech becomes gospel. Because there's something inherent about gospel speech that must include others. When one hears it with ears to hear, it causes one to look across the aisle, across town, across the kitchen table, and in our mirror, ours and theirs. Every politician knows that if you tell people what they don't want to hear, and you don't provide them with a scapegoat, then the people will pick you as their scapegoat. But Jesus is here to bring the gospel, to fulfill the year of the Lord's favor for all people, not to satisfy whatever will make us comfortable. Jesus refuses to name an enemy, and so they take the closest one at hand, him. They try to kill him, and in the end, they will get their way. In every age, we do get our way with him. We kill God's word in order to keep it for ourselves. And that's where the story ends. They run Jesus out of the church. They're so blinded with rage that they fail to see the light of the world pass right through their midst. Jesus moves on to fulfill his mission, but this week I can't stop thinking about that crowd standing on the edge of that cliff. There are people in a place, but their purpose had slipped away. Seething in their anger, but having no one to take it out on but themselves. And I don't know, and the story doesn't say, but I wonder if in that moment on the hill, with Jesus' words, I wonder if they were still ringing in their ears, words about releasing captives, freeing prisoners, the year of Jubilee. And that strange comment that today this has been fulfilled in our hearing. I mean, what does that even mean? Nothing's changed as far as I can see. The only thing that's different is that we've moved out from the synagogue onto this cliff. And I don't know and the story doesn't say, but I wonder if that may have been Jesus' goal all along. To get them out of the synagogue and onto that cliff. To give them a new perspective. I wonder if some of them looked out over that cliff and saw all the many boundaries and borderlands that made them feel safe once. Those boundaries that gave them an identity, not about who they are, but about who they're not. 
In the synagogue, those boundaries are, are so defined. But out here on the cliff, they all kind of blend together into one land. Zarephath to the north, Syria to the east. In the synagogue, those boundaries induced anger and hate. But out here on the cliff, looking at all those lands stretching out as far as the eye can see, it looked like freedom. And I don't know, and the story doesn't say, but I wonder, I wonder if in that moment, the realization flashed in their minds that maybe, maybe Jesus was talking about us. We who have been captive to this anger and this hatred, we who have been imprisoned in the chains of resentment and hard-heartedness and bitterness and partisan politics and anger at the other and us versus them, we who stop believing that the year of Jubilee will ever come, who stopped hoping for reconciliation, who stopped trusting in the power of forgiveness, who believe we'll be in debt forever, who know God's supposed to be all-powerful, but don't think that power will ever work for us. Maybe we're the ones in jail, and Jesus has come to set us free. Because when you can't forgive, or find forgiveness, you're in prison. Think about how much energy we exhaust in sleepless nights of guilt and resentment, all the effort that goes into avoiding particular people because of their anger or ours, all that work to avoid difficult subjects with friends or strangers. How many of us change jobs or even change churches? because a particular person is intolerable presence in our life. When that store of energy is released, we find ourselves free. We find ourselves at peace. We find ourselves joyful. It's more radical than any social or economic program, although it is social and economic. It's the greatest power in the universe. And if it were unleashed in its entirety, the world would almost definitely be a completely different place. It's the forgiveness of sins. That's what Jubilee means. That's what transformation means. That's what salvation means. But if it is to happen, dear church, then we are going to have to stretch. Stretch beyond our comfort. Stretch beyond our injuries, beyond our well-defended private lives. Loving beyond the limits that we inherited. I believe that we are called to stretch, and that if we stretch, we will see people that we once thought a threat become a blessing. That if we stretch, we will see people on the margins of society become leaders. When we stretch, when the church stretches, the church will begin to become a place of love and compassion instead of a place where people say, you don't belong here. 
I want to see a church, a church that is loving, a church that lifts up, a church that is healing. This is our calling. And the question today is, can you stretch? Can you stretch? If we allow God to stretch us, to expand our embrace, God will move us beyond where we are so that our enslaved hearts would find freedom and we would be redeemed. It's the year of the Lord's favor. Here's the bad news. Jesus says you're in prison. He says you're captive. But here's the good news. Jesus wants to set us free. He wants to open our lives to the most powerful force in the world. He wants, to give, he wants us to be able to give and to receive forgiveness from God and from one another. He wants to make this the year of Jubilee. And here's the challenge. Will you let him today? Amen.